0: Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing zombies, transnational co-productions, and Cuban cinema. Our guest is Bianca Padina. She is currently a visiting lecturer and fellow in the Department of Film, Media, and Theater at Mount Holyoke College. Her research interests include media globalization and its effects on the global south, Latin American and Latinx media cultures, migrant and trans media, and gender studies. Her dissertation, titled Vital Exports, Mediating Cuban Solidarity in Global South Imaginaries, explores media's role in the discourses and practices of Cuban internationalism and South-South solidarity since the Cold War. She served as coordinating editor of the Media Fields Journal and co-edited the journal's issue on media and migration. Her work has been published in the journals, Studies in Spanish and Latin American Cinemas, Spectator, and the forthcoming edited collection, Media in the Americas. Bianca, welcome to the Global Media Cultures podcast.
1: Hi Juan, thank you for having me.
0: I want to start by asking you, how did you get to focus on these particular research interests? What, what is it that appealed to you um, and why is it an important area to study?
1: Well, my personal interest in particularly South South solidarity stems from my experience growing up in Nicaragua. Um, Nicaragua was a recipient of Cuban solidarity for a very long time, or participated in solidarity exchanges with Cuba for a very long time uh, since the 1970s. And in particularly while I was growing up, the significance of Cuban doctors and uh, Cuban educational opportunities were was something I had noticed for a very long time. But, but as I began studying media history, I realized that Cuba also had a significant role in the establishment of a Cuban a Nicaraguan Film Institute. And also in the creation of filmmaking opportunities around many of the countries, where it also had a military and civilian presence. So that really informed my interest in finding out more about the ways in which this image of Cuba as a space for South-South solidarity has been constructed throughout time and how it has changed as different historical moments dictate different needs for global South States.
0: So today we're discussing your article, Juan of the Dead, Anxious Consumption in Zombie Cinema in Cuba, which was published in the journal Studies in Spanish and Latin American Cinemas, Volume 14 in 2017. Can you give us a brief history of this particular essay? Like When you began working on it, how did the original, uh, the ideas for the project originate, and then how did they change in the process of researching and, and writing?
1: I began working on this article in the spring of 2014 as I was uh, completing the coursework for my PhD at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, I had seen the film before during its theatrical run in Cuba, actually. So it was that experience of having seen the film in a Cuban theater with a Cuban audience had been very significant to me, in large part, I don't mean if nobody or anybody's familiar with the Film viewing practices in Cuba are—they are very, very different from what we normally do in the U.S., which is you go, you sit quietly, and you know maybe eat your popcorn, and that's as much as you do. But in Cuba, really, audiences speak back, talk back to the screen constantly, and the—the theater becomes a social space that reacts to the film and interacts with the film and you know I think at some point while I was there somebody like answered their phone their cell phone and took like a 10 minute long conversation with whoever was calling so that experience I think also informed my understanding of the audience dynamics with the film because I was then able to rewatch the film, I think in the fall of 2013, when uh, Alejandro Brugues, the director, came to UC Santa Barbara. And so I had the experience of seeing that in a more academic setting with a mostly US audience, and then uh, be able to watch a post-screening interview with the director. That really, I think, changed the way I understood the film and informed my analysis of the different modes of address in this particular text. Um, Before I had worked on this film specifically, my master's research when I was doing my uh, MA in Latin American Studies at Tulane had been on what you call um, Cine Joven or Young Cinema in Cuba this explosion of independent filmmaking by uh, young Cuban graduates from a lot of the art schools, including the Cuban International Film and Television School in San Antonio de los Baños, which has you know students from all over Latin America, including the U.S. and as well as Africa and Asia, and so. I had been focusing on their work and how they had been transforming the Cuban cinematic landscape during the early, during the 2000s, more than anything, but especially as part of the transformations that came in the 90s with the special period and the crisis that uh, came about in Cuba, which we will talk about later. And so that I think had also, that knowing that history really informed my understanding of this film in particular, not just as a Cuban film, but as a Cuban film that is part of a particular generational dynamic. And it's situated in a particular industrial history as well.
0: Right. So the article focuses mostly on Juan, uh, one of the dead, right, Juan de los Muertos. And you know it comes in a particular moment in the 2010s, uh, which is following the, the changes in the 90s and then the changes in the early 2000s. Could you give us a brief sort of overview of what Cuban cinema looks like in these years? Um, and you mentioned the significance of the sort of the special period and that sort of impact and the ramifications of that for, for filmmaking in the in the two decades after.
1: Yes. So, well, the special period, for uh, those who don't know, is what really the the full term that uh, was coined by Israel Castro was the special period in times of peace. And it was uh, uh, used to talk about the deep crisis that came about with the fall of the Soviet bloc, when Cuba lost its main economic partner. Um, It's, you know, the special period. there, There are some debate about how long it lasted. Some people say it ended in the 2000s. Other Others believe that the special period continues today. Mm-hmm. Um, but really with the crisis, what came about was a deep and widespread moment of economic transformation in the island that meant the need to find new economic partnerships and new sources of foreign currency when you we also have to keep in mind that during this whole time the U.S. had maintained an embargo a very um, detrimental very serious embargo on Cuba that affected really their ability to get even the most basic resources like food and in particularly in, in the cinema landscape it meant that the Cuban Film Institute, which had since the 1960s been the main source of cinematic production in Cuba and had really controlled over control over the industry and produced, you know, some of the classics of Latin American cinema that we know today, saw itself completely unable to produce anything, lacking even the most like fuel to get to a set where you might wanna film something. And that also meant that young filmmakers who had graduated from all of these art programs that continue to exist in Cuba and which a lot of people in Latin America, for example, don't have access to, and so you don't have as many trained and highly trained professionals in, in some of these countries were not able to find a space within the, CAIC, the Cuban Film Institute. So they had to find ways of making films outside of the institute. And digital technologies made it possible to do it, even with the very, very limited digital technologies that are available in Cuba there was still a possibility that they uh, were able to use in the the process of making their own films and doing so without the restraints of the State Institute.
0: So as you point out, it's a moment that becomes sort of a crisis, right? So the main state run um, center can't produce films anymore. Um, in the ways that it used to, or the capacity that it used to. Um, so, but there's still all this talent that wants to produce films. And so they they turn to other forms of production outside of the, the official, um, let's say institutions, while still being mi- mindful of the sort of state restrictions in terms of content, or in terms of um, the kinds of things that they can be talking about. Um, digital media helps in some ways, both because these films circulate, as you mentioned, um, through, uh, uh, like portable drives and so on and so forth. Um, but also in terms of the, the kinds of films that they were making, one of the things that that's interesting is a lot of them are genre films, right? Um, they use, they turn to genre tropes or very popular genres to, to tell their stories. So what, what was the usefulness of using genre or turning to genre films for, for these filmmakers?
1: I think in part it allowed a way of separating themselves from the previous generations of Cuban filmmakers and revolutionary Cuban filmmakers that had rejected genre tropes and genre cinema in general and had tried to create a particular version of a national cinema. And so it both enabled them to create their own identity as young filmmakers in a younger generation in this country, but also made evident for them and to everybody the connections that Cuba had maintained to the outside world, even in a context where we're always imagining Cuba as this isolated space. Right? And so I think a big part of that and, and why the interest in One of the Dead uh, in the international media was so significant is because uh, the way the film and, and many of these films are able to mobilize some of these tropes about Cuba itself. So it's not just a way of using some genre tropes to in the form of a particular genre text to send a message, but also to be savvy about what international audiences might expect from a Cuban film, and then use that as a hook that then allows for a more complex representation of the island and a more multi-layered representation of the island as well.
0: So can we talk a little bit about the zombie and why that matters to, to all of these issues? Um, you give us a brief overview of where the zombie figure comes from and it's changed significantly throughout the many decades um, of, of film history. Um, but what are some of the key aspects that, that you note and how the zombie has been taken up and why it's helpful to think through the sort of issues that you bring up with Juan de los Martos?
1: Yeah. Well, the zombie as we know it today, right? The the typical bodies that don't have control or don't really have a mind and want to eat brains or human flesh was really, this monster was really created by George Romero in the 60s and 70s. And it was a combination of the figure of the zombie as it had come and had been adapted in early cinema or early sound cinema in particular from the Haitian voodoo tradition uh, and the ghoul, which was really mm. the figure where, that ate and consumed human flesh, usually though, the, the ghoul would be in a graveyard. Mm. And it would consume already uh, dead bodies. For Romero, uh, the zombie, the zombie's cannibalism becomes a way of mediating the anxieties around capitalism and consumerism so really like, consumption is becomes a very literal uh, right. or eating others becomes a very literal way to talk about the ways in which capitalist structures enable us to consume one another. Um, it's interesting I think that it's doing that by then consuming a figure that came from the Caribbean and right. and manipulating it in different ways, to me was I think the one of the most interesting parts of this was is to trace back uh, the history of the zombie to the its place in Haitian Voodoo, where it was really a way of of mediating and, and thinking about anxieties around slavery.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The zombie was a figure that whose part of their soul had been taken by the voodoo or zombie master and then made to work forever right so it was the thread of slavery continuing even even after death oftentimes and and becomes a popular figure in the U.S. around the time of the American occupation in Haiti between 1915 and 1934, when uh, William Seabrook published a book, uh, The Magic Island. And that became very, you know, very popular throughout the U.S., but also generated some of the first adaptations of the zombie in early cinema in films like White Zombie or I Walked With a Zombie or Wanga all of which present the threat of zombification as being enacted on especially white women Right. so it was about the barbaric threat of the other particularly a male other that then tries to take the purity of the white woman and really exemplifies sort of this colonial relationship. I think today, really, the zombie is more about its viral threats and it, it's about an outbreak uh, narrative, which I think that the current moment is probably going to lead to new iterations yeah. of, of that narrative. Um, because the trend you had seen up until now was kind of a, a domestication of the zombie outbreak where eventually science triumphs over this unknown catastrophe. And there's some way of bringing reason and sort of the rationality of science back into to, to order, um, which I don't know. If that's necessarily going to be the case anymore, and it certainly was not the case
0: before. Yeah, I, as you point out, the the zombie in all these different iterations um, always comes to represent or to um, embody, if you will, different sorts of anxieties, right? Whether it's anxieties over slavery, anxieties over the colonized other, um, anxieties over sort of the post-war prosperity and over consumption. Um, and then anxieties over contagion, right? And, and, and virus spread, um, thinking about questions like um, terrorist warfare and all these other. And now I'm assuming we might have a new iteration, which will be about pandemics, right? The, the, the spread of pandemics um, in some way. So on the one hand, the zombie is very much embodying all these different anxieties. On the other hand, it is a figure that keeps getting... Uh, reappropriated or re articulated for the different moments, right? So if it starts in Haitian voodoo, it then t- gets taken up by American cinema in some way. It becomes this international figure. So a lot of other um, national genre of cinemas are taking up the zombie and producing their own version. Um, and then it, in Cuba, for example, being one of those examples, right? Um, so the figure itself is being very much reappropriated, which, and you get to this in some ways, right? And thinking not only about the zombie, but just the the use of genre and the kinds of things that Juan de los Muertos is doing. Um, and so you use this term, the cosmopolitics of reappropriation, um, as a way to think through these things. Could you could you explain this what this concept means to you um, and why it's an, an sort of an important dynamic to to think about or to to write about?
1: Yeah. Well, in this particular case, I um really want to use the term to think about and refer to the complexity of a cinematic production that relies specifically on Spanish financing to mediate contemporary the contemporary human context and it does that by bringing the figure of the zombie back to the Caribbean but without returning it to its original iteration right. so this is a post Romero zombie that it's used here to symbolize the effects of communism and supposed global isolation rather than capitalism and global interconnectedness. Right. I think in general, the concept makes more sense when you think about it in terms of a broader history of the global politics of extraction mm-hmm. and the way that these material and cultural resources have been extracted from places like the Caribbean for centuries. So the kind of reappropriation that I'm thinking about here, it's not a straightforward one where you take back what was previously extracted from your home or was previously taken from you and then you reject the mm-hmm. people who took it but more about finding ways to use those very systems of extraction to work for you and, and being able to enter them in a way that benefits those that have usually been at the sort of, at the bad end of these relationship, to put that simplistically, right, or the, the ones from whom that um, resources have been extracted. And remaining cognizant, at least to some degree, of the limitations, I think, and the re- requirements of this process of entrance into systems of consumption.
0: Right, and you note that this happens both at the sort of the level of the film, the level of the text, right? In the taking back the zombie, it's not about taking back the zombie to the Haitian voodoo version of it, but um, adapting it from the sort of current iteration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also occurs at the level of, of production, right? Um, in the case of Cuban cinema and the dependence on Spanish um, investment for these kinds of co-productions. Um, Juan de los Muertos is very much embedded in that, uh, but also speaks back to that, right? So could you talk to us a little bit about what, in your analysis, what does thinking about Juan de los Muertos get us to understand about transnational co-productions or how sort of Cuban filmmakers now are responding to that political economic reality um, of filmmaking?
1: I think that any understanding of the co-production dynamics arising from this film is important by the fact that it is a co-production with Spain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we need to understand then the sort of history of Spanish-Cuban co-productions in the 90s and early 2000s in order to see how this film is both deploying some of these stereotypes and rebelling against some of them. I mean, it would have been very easy for this film to return to a more traditional or original zombie figure and make this about Santeria. Right. Right, or about like an Afro-Cuban religious tradition. And that's where that zombie comes from. But then that might have also spoken to other kinds of stereotypes that were very prevalent in some of these early co-produced films, not just with Spain, but with a lot of other European countries. But it doesn't fully reject the stereotypes that have been co-produced about Cuba, in particular, that stereotype of Cuba as a space of decay, as a decaying vestige of socialism, an island that's stuck in time. Mm-hmm. It's something that the film certainly manipulates to attract international audiences and then also uses to make a nod to those local audiences about not just our daily reality, but an understanding of this is what foreigners are expecting to see from a Cuban film. So there are these multiple levels of address and interaction there that I think is significant and is a big part of the nature of co-productions today.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost like it's doing this double speak simultaneously, right? Yeah. It's for the foreigners it's playing into these stereotypes so that they'll watch it and be like, yeah, this is what I expected for from a Cuban film to come. Um, For the locals, it's saying, look, this is how foreigners look at us, Um, and then let's laugh about it um, in some ways. So I think,
1: yeah, ultimately, if I were to think of what am I saying about co-productions, I guess it's to think about them more as processes rather than products, Mm -hmm. right? So even that a, a single text is, uh, it derives meaning from a history and a particular tradition uh, of filmmaking, but also is co-produced over and over at different moments of address. Right. So in terms of meaning, it is not a singular product.
0: Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about where you see this happening in the, in the film or in different moments in the story? Like I'm thinking the one that strikes me uh, the most is that scene where they go to the, uh, the hotel, right? And there's all these Spanish tourists who have clearly just come to Cuba to have uh, sex um, and hire sex workers and, and for very cheap. Um, and they're just running down the stairs, right? So it's very much commenting on that imaginary of Cuba as a place where you go for, uh, for sex tourism in some way, um, and then playing that up. But what are some other moments that you see in where it's doing that sort of double speaking to the local audience and uh, but also nodding to that international audience.
1: Yeah, I mean, and when you talk about things like that, I think you also have to consider that those big hotels, those big Cuban hotels, are all managed by Spanish companies. Right. Uh, so it's also at the very level of the ownership of resources in a socialist nation and who gets to benefit from the... Opening of Cuban tourism, or Cuba in general, the Cuban economy. There are certain complexities that the film is pointing to, even as you know it is drawing it benefits and is being. It's possible, because of this opening, I think the humor is really one of the most significant parts of this address. Most of the jokes I think are funny to international audiences but then have a different layer of meaning or, or for a Cuban viewer. The running gag of the state TV newscast or right. even the use of like, an old American car as a makeshift raft that will right. eventually take Juan's family and friends um, out of Cuba these are all grounded in very real experiences for Cuban audiences. And so they, they gather new meaning in this context as well. But I think the way we understand them are, is off outside of Cuba is often based on just these kind of stereotypical views that right. don't fully understand the experience of, upon which these images are based. And there are even things, you know, moments of of exposition that are only fully comprehensible to uh, Cuban Cuban viewers. So at the very beginning, when we meet Juan and Lazaro and they're fishing Mm -hmm. in a raft in the sea, you know, that doesn't really mean much to foreign audiences, but to enter into Cuban audiences, they know that this is an illegal activity, right? Right. We're talking about an island where it is illegal for their citizens to go out into the sea and fish mm-hmm. in large part because during the 1994 rafter crisis, boat- fishing boats were some of the main vehicles that were used by people to leave the island. Right. But also nowadays, is because seafood is such an important part of the tourism industry that the state needs to control it. Right. And so, yes, people still go out and fish and then often sell those, whatever they catch in the black market, but they are risking jail time right. while doing this. So the extent of the transgression, I don't think is very evident unless you know that.
0: Right, and it's something that, it introduces the character immediately as like this is. It tells us something about him that he engages in this illegal uh, fishing, which then makes sense why he would just uh, develop this business of we kill your zombies for you. Yeah. Uh, but it's something that if we didn't know that how illegal fishing is for for a regular citizen, we wouldn't catch it um, right away. Right. Yeah,
1: yeah. There is a and, and you know, a lot of scholarship about Cuba and since a special period mentions this attitude of resolver or make do, mm-hmm. which really prevails in Cuba. And I think this is part of what uh, the film is hinting at. But, you know, resolver extends to even sex work, right? And the significant and the, the role of Laddie as a jinetero, this guy who's flirting with foreigners, foreign women who are visiting the country and engaging in the very, a relationship where the terms of exploitation are very confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, That is really a big part of that attitude as well. And so this sense of the, a certain erosion of morality that has been necessary in order to survive this crisis.
0: Right, right. So a lot of how this is happening a lot of how the the film is commenting on both the state of the island and the sort of foreign perceptions of it um, is through comedy right so it's a zombie comedy essentially and you point this out in in, in a number of of scenes so what do you find are the advantages and the drawbacks of the film or just cuban film in general of using comedy as a way to comment on uh, the nation state and, and the government let's say
1: Humor is really a critical strategy of survival Mm -hmm. in Cuba in the midst of not just the crisis, but the kinds of control that the state exercises in in everyday life. And so part of why the comedy is so effective here is because it is being taken from Cuban culture and from Cuban everyday life, you know, on, uh, on the island. And so I think that is something that's significant to really understand the way in which audiences in Cuba see, may see this film as portraying their way of life on a daily basis right. uh, in a way that not, uh, not necessarily, uh, is not necessarily done by other films, other Cuban films even. There is a tradition that this film is drawing from to use humor as a way of passing a critique through what, I don't want to say necessarily the censors, but you still have to get your film approved to be shown in Cuban film, in cinemas, right? So comedy becomes an easy way of taking away some of the seriousness of the critique while still packing a punch. I'm a bit more reluctant to make claims about the drawbacks of comedy as an instrument of straight critique, but what I will say is that the same cultural awareness that makes that comedy an effective tool to make those critiques in the film, it's used to justify sometimes some of the more problematic aspects. So, particularly the homophobic tones of the film. And this was something that actually Bruges himself brought up uh, during the screening, the post-screening Q&A at UC Santa Barbara in 2013. So, without even being asked a question, he brought up the fact that some people have um, criticized him for his portrayal of some of the characters, Mm -hmm. particularly Latina, who is sort of the flamboyant, effeminate gay character that seems to be there only to make clear how desirable one is to, you know, not just uh, heterosexual women, but oh, like, oh, and apparently also lesbians and gay men. So it's just this, you know, to really stress one's virility, I guess. And then to become uh the butt of the joke in a lot of these moments right so she, a lot of the comedy comes from her bodily performance but then also the violence that this film acts on her
0: right
1: um and so you know his argument or burgesa's argument was that well you know this is just Cuban humor and in fact jaz vila who is um the actor who portrays latinas encouraged me to add certain gags to really take the character like further and all this mm-hmm. which is not necessarily a great excuse right but then i think it reveals then that sense of how the local can become in a local idiosyncrasy can become a way of justifying or or you know really counteracting a critique right. that comes out from outside. There is no mention of all the other uh, sort of homophobic moments in the film, including sort of the, the, our second introduction to Juan, which is him telling a little boy that his father is a sodomite.
0: Right. Are there? Can you think of other examples of contemporary Cuban films, whether they're genre films or not genre films, that that you think are more interesting or more compelling in the treatment of contemporary gender and, and sexual norms?
1: I mean, there are quite a few. I <laughs> it's hard not to think of a film that's less problematic in these terms. <laughs> but um, I think if we're thinking particularly about homoerotic relations and, and homosexuality, there has been several films in the past few years and, Particularly, a, a, I don't want to say an explosion, but a new wave of queer cinema in Cuba. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking about films like Verde Verde, but uh, by Enrique Pineda Barnett, or Chamaco by Juan Carlos Cremata, that really like think differently about um, homosexuality and homoeroticism, but. At the same time, often adhere to that trope of enacting violence on Mm. the gay body, right? And and ultimately having that body uh, meet a violent end, which I think is important in this context, though, because you have then the ability for a gay filmmaker to reflect the kind of violence that Cuban society often inflicts upon Gay people gay men in particular Right. However This isn't done necessarily from a space of state critique so right. not enough films or uh, that I can think of have really thought about the ways that the state itself has uh, repressed queer people and gay men in particular, you know, who many of them had been uh, sent to camps during the 70s and mm-hmm. this is a um, a kind of a drama and a problem that reappeared recently because the daughter of the man who had created these, these camps had then been recorded and she works at the Cuban Television in- Institute, she had been recorded. During some kind of brief general briefing talking about The need for masculine voices in order to like really transmit the message of the state and how mm-hmm. all these Voces amaneradas right? So it's like feminine voices. Yeah. really create uh, an ideological confusion Right, so that is something I think that really needs to be addressed more mm-hmm. uh, and I think there is also a way in which foreign filmmakers are coming to Cuba to try to explore queer culture in the island in different ways. And, I, and that's something to, I think that needs more attention.
0: Have you uh, built on this work since its publication or some of the ideas that you have uh, were exploring and thinking about Juan de los Muertos or contemporary sort of Cuban genre cinema? Have you built on that since then?
1: Not about this particular film, but I, uh, part of what I'm uh, doing some work on right now and have done a little bit of research before is really the, uh, another kind of recurring trope in a lot of these co-produced films, which is the image of the child and mm-hmm. this return to an idyllic like Cuban past, whether it is, I mean, it's the pre-revolutionary past at different stages. It could be the, you know, as a young kid, and the colonial and independence period, or really just the moment right before the revolution, and films like La de la Peseta. and how that really creates a different kind of appeal, a nostalgic appeal that speaks really to international audiences on the basis of just the appeal of, of this child figure, mm-hmm. but also to a sense of a less complicated past and raising a lot of the, the complexities of that moment.
0: Well, I guess we talked a little bit about this in terms of um, the pandemic and the shifting ideas of the zombie. Have there been any other recent developments either in Cuban cinema, in the world uh, or in your research that have now added or, or, uh, complemented your initial arguments of the piece.
1: Yes, I, there in Cuba in particular, there has been a lot of activity around uh, regulating the work of independent producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, uh, with the passing of a new Cuban constitution, a new cinema law was enacted and uh, really a number of laws that regulate artistic and cultural production on the island. Mm-hmm. And part of the issue here was uh, a demand initially by independent producers to have an actual legal status, right? Because a lot of these independent companies like, for example, Quinta Avenida, which made Juan of the Dead, had been operating for years, but did not have actual legal standing.
0: Right.
1: Because Cuban law did not allow for independent producers to exist Mm -hmm. so taking that demand then with this new cinema law what happened was really or what has become evident is an attempt to extend the control of the state over these kinds of productions and there has been a significant attack uh, on independent producers including um, the producers at Quinta Venida in Cuba. So that has been uh, quite a significant development. There have been a lot of banned films and growing allegations of state repression against filmmakers. Mm -hmm. I think one of the more recent ones was the film Santa y Andres, which uh, has been banned from uh, being shown in Cuban theaters, but many other filmmakers on the island have experienced considerable repression, including uh, things like this police barging in on private uh, screenings of their work and stopping that, or them being in terror, or anyone who collaborates with these filmmakers being interrogated by police, uh, and and really a challenge to their ability to work.
0: Right. It seems like it's a cyclical sort of coming back of the state um, to try and take control of that again
1: which I think really uh, would change how I would approach this film or analysis of any other film because part of my initial interest in talking about One of the Dead was the way in which so many of the international coverage or so much of the international coverage about the film had been focusing on the fact that you know this kind of critique is even possible, right. like how is this not being repressed? And so part of my frustration was that, you know, the sense of, well, there has been critique before, it's not necessarily always repressed, but I think this then complicates some of those historical trajectories for sure.
0: Bianca, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu. Opening song by Pontington Bear and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening.